Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. The first time I met you was unremarkable. We were at the Clark Street house this June, just gone. All my friends were there, plus Travis, as he and Renee had started dating. You'd come with Travis. It wasn't a party, just a gathering of us. The nights had become utterly bitter and we'd decided to rechristen the Chimena for another winter. I arrived at 11 after a show. I was in the dregs of a season and I had reached that particular state of delirium where I was sick of playing for even the weirdest laughs. Midway through a show, lines that were never meant to be funny, past the milk Johnny, are played and played and played, and afterwards the cast laughs about how easy it is to make an audience lose it to anything if you ham it up enough. But I was past that. All that was keeping me going was the knowledge that each act only went for an hour, and I could count the number of times I had to do the show again on two hands. I didn't know then that it would be my final show. That's an excerpt from Small Joys of Real Life, Ali Richards' debut novel. The book follows Eva as she's entering her late 20s, ambivalent about her career and living with two friends she's had since primary school. That's when she meets Pat. Their brief encounters feel like the start of something. Just weeks later, Pat dies and Eva realises she's pregnant. Now she has to make a choice about what shape her career, her friendships, her life will take from now on. Ali Richards' Small Joys of Real Life is a novel about how these tiny encounters and sun-dramatic life events can send us skittering off in directions we never expected, but that will shape who and what we are. And Ali Richards joins me on the line now to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Ali, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me, Mel, and thank you. You have a really beautiful reading voice, so I really enjoyed listening to you then. Well, I'm glad um, it wasn't too grating um, for you to be sitting on the line listening to that. Look, Not I, at all. I think there's an audio book in the works, actually, if you're interested in the reading. We can certainly talk later. I, look... I have to say there is, um, this book is one of those really interesting kinds of books that feel like the writing is very simple, but in fact, uh, as I've just demonstrated reading through that, there's a lot going on. You've layered in a lot of, you know, complexity, a lot of imagery, um, but it does feel like it's quite uh, simply written. And that's a very specific kind of technique that you've done uh, you know, that you've created this sort of sense that you're reading a very readable book. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know I'm diving straight into craft and I'm kind of not, you know, we often talk about the narrative and the the book itself, but I am really interested in in how you've kind of gone about sort of honing the way that you write, because this is quite an assured debut, I have to say. Oh, thank you so much. Um, And that's really great to hear because it was definitely what I was 
really aiming for in the book. Um, I wanted it to be a book where people read it in one or two sittings and it didn't feel hard, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't necessarily pack a punch. Um, you know, I sometimes I like reading kind of more dense and meaty books, but I wanted this one to be one of the more simple ones. And when I was working on it, I actually went back and read a whole bunch of novels that I remembered having read in just one or two sittings. Um, Off the top of my head, I can remember actually, funnily enough, a lot of books that this one's been compared to. um, Jennifer Downs, Our Magic Hour, Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, um, Helen Garner's Monkey Grip, these books that I just sort of remember inhaling. Um, And I went through and I would read each chapter and at the end of the chapter I would write down what had happened and what had changed. And I um, sort of looked at how you can just increase tension in subtle ways uh, with simple language and simple sentences. Um, and then it was it was a lot of a lot of editing and re-editing and rewriting. Though was how you um, you can write those scenes where there's a lot going under underneath the surface. Yeah, it's really. I have often wondered about that because these kind of these books that really do feel like observed novels, you feel as though this very much could be autobiographical in the way that it's been written. And I'm I'm really very interested in how people achieve that style and also layer in this complexity. Do you use? I know as Helen Garner obviously does, um, as you've mentioned in in one of the references, Monkey Group, um, keep a, a journal and you know write these kinds of observations about life. We know, for example, Monkey Group very much was probably not fiction at all, <laughs> um, but very well observed, um, where, whereas Rooney's writing, again, has that energy that I think you're also achieving. Are you someone who keeps a, a daily writer's journal? Do you use that to sort of give you the energy of, of real life and real observations? Or are you, you know, more of an imaginative writer in other ways? Uh, I don't keep a daily journal, but when I am writing a book, I have this excellent app called Bear um, where you can put – I used to do it on the notes app with my phone, but the good thing about this app is you can sort of hashtag your thoughts and then you can find them all later. So whenever I would be sort of on the train or something and I'd have a moment or an observation, then I'd go into the book, I'd just sort of punch it into my phone. So I, I don't, like, sit down and write a diary or diarise my life, but um, – that there is a documenting process when I know that I'm writing, working on a novel, that everything around you, you start thinking like, oh, that that could be in there or that works for that. Um, it's also, funnily enough, all my friends joke that I have this really kind of psychotic memory. So I just remember, I don't remember anything like important. Like I don't remember anything I learned in high school, but I like remember that everything that everyone said to me in high school, like I, and I can like recount conversations from years ago and stuff. So I don't know that... Um, it's some. It's for some reason I I must be relaying these conversations over in my head all the time, and that's how I remember them. Yeah. Well, look, um, you have both a, a great eye for, I guess, the details of life as well as dialogue. Uh, there is a lot more of the kind of interiority of this character going on without losing any of the energy of the writing, and you do vary how how the writing sort of works. You know, how do you build that up? How do you build up a character and, and their environment to sort of give it a sense of of that sort of realism? It was a lot of time. You know, I came up with the idea in 2017 um, and I just started bashing out scenes that were nowhere near as, you know, they didn't have any of that nuance or layering that you were talking about. They were just scenes, um, people, people talking and people getting in situations and then, 
it was, um, you know, so that was 2017 and 2018. I didn't really work on it that much, but I always kept it in mind and then went back to it in 2019, which is when I did most of the writing. And you, so that by that point, I'd be sort of thinking about this character for two years and you, I would put her in situations and I would just instinctively make her behave one way or the other and then I would go back and think, well, why would someone do that? It could be for this reason or that reason. And I sort of go backwards under it. Um, I actually think there's a similarity because Eve is an actor um, and she really hates acting, but I actually am really fascinated with the craft of acting and I think that it is really similar in writing in that you get the script and then the actor has to colour in what's underneath it and I think that I sort of do that myself where I just write something and then I have to colour in underneath it and figure out what's, what, what could be under there and there's always options and you just kind of just pick them. Yeah, look, I, I, what I love about, I, I read an interview with you and I really, I haven't actually um, encountered a writer that had such a clear sort of statement on uh, on what they do to sort of get themselves into the mood uh, for <laughs> writing. And I did wonder if this has affected, you, you know, your style and processes. I think I think I recall you saying that you uh, turned off all internet connections and et cetera, played music, and before you set out to write, you would read a, a short story by either someone like Laurie Moore or... Josephine Rowe, which delights me, another um, local writer who is excellent and very good at doing observed life and very taught writing as well. Do you feel like that's a really essential part of, of getting the craft going is to really, you know, use uh, the, the lessons of other writers to teach you how, how to write? Or do you feel, you know, because in some... In some writers' cases, they feel as though they need to kind of move away so they're not just overly channeling voices. So I was quite fascinated to hear you sort of say that you like to read the, the writing of another writer before you set off on your own. Yeah, it's interesting, though, I think, because um, that interview was... At that time, I was writing more short fiction. And I, uh, in um, Small Joys of Great Life, because it's written in first-person present tense, I actually found that really hard to read in the morning because so few books are actually written in that voice um, except a lot of young adult fiction is and I'm not really sure why that is that, that is in young adult fiction and not in sort of adult fiction but um so I would sometimes I would read in the morning and then I would be like oh god I can't this is actually sort of wrong footing me a bit to get into this really specific voice um but I do, you know, all those things the sort of rituals you were talking about writing I do kind of try and think of it as getting into kind of what we do at work when, like, the lights go down before the show goes on and you've, you've got to, like, have your phone off and you've got to be concentrating and you've got to be, like, in the zone. Um, I like to kind of approach it like that. Um, sometimes I don't do that, of course. There are days when I'm on Instagram and doing things and I don't actually know if the quality of my work is better in one form or the other, but definitely my enjoyment that I get from work is better if I do fully kind of zone in and try and get into, like, flow state as everyone calls it. Yeah, you also talk, uh, I think in this particular interview, you spoke about your work that you do in theatre and mm -hmm. how you draw on that for a lot of inspiration. And I, I think this is a really interesting area because, you know, writers in this country <laughs> often cannot live off their craft. And let's be frank about that. That is a real difficulty uh, in our industry. But is there a real 
gain to be had in making sure you're in, quote, real life or you're doing something that gives you uh, a rich terrain to draw from? Because you certainly indicated in that interview that that was a very important, um, you know, muse for you, I guess, having the theatre as a as a source of inspiration or ideas as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone needs to have their, their connection to their real life. I think, um, you know, if I did sell a million copies, I think that I would then, I would have some thought process where I'd be like, well, what, I'll volunteer my time doing something or have some connection that you can, and it has happened with writers before, you know, they, they write a few really good novels and then later their novels just turn into novels about writers <laughs> thinking about writing and you know, like that's sort of and then no one really wants to read that except maybe a few other writers. <laughs> so I think like your life is um, it's you know, that's that's what you need to be reflecting back. And while it's it's brilliant to have relationships with other artists and you connect with them and you share your experience, but then it's um, also good to hang out with people who don't know what the Stella Prize is and they just think it's cool that you wrote a book. <laughs> Before you start self-cannibalising to such an extreme degree. Yeah, look, I, I want to, you know, talk a little bit more about... Um, about the actual substance of the book. It is sort of, I, I guess it's, you could call it a coming of age and I think we sort of shifted this idea of coming of age from, you know, really young adult or teenage years to, to I guess, that sort of transition from early your early 20s to your late 20s. I think that, you know, we are kind of really holding on to adolescence a lot longer, uh, or we would be if we weren't all in lockdown, I guess. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, there is this idea that, you know, you're getting into your late 20s, heading towards your 30s, or even in your early 30s is when adulthood adulthood really sets sail. And we're kind of at that stage with, with Eva. And I thought it was a really interesting setup that you've given her. So she is, um, as we indicated in the introduction, um, a young woman in her um, kind of tipping over into her late 20s. She's really successful as an actor, but ambivalent about both you know, acting and the fact that she's good at it. It's just come naturally to her and she never really thought about her career. She's living with two um, women who she'd actually gone to primary school with, so they're renegotiating their relationships as uh, in later adulthood. And she's really at that moment in time when you kind of start to say things that I, I do have slightly more consequence when this dramatic event happens. Do you sort of, did you think a lot about this? Because I guess the Sally Rooney books also feel a bit, are, are kind of really classified in many ways as coming of age. Did you feel that this was kind of a coming of age book and how did you sort of approach things with that, that sort of, um, I know, I guess the material that you're working with? Yeah, I, I 100% thought of it as a coming of age book. And I think I got some really early feedback when I was working on it as someone saying like, oh, don't pitch it as coming of age because that's like young adult books that are about high school kids. And I was just like, I was not coming of age out of high school. I wasn't thinking about anything. Like I was just going to uni and getting drunk and like I was not, I did not come of age and I had no, like it was great fun. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and I, I think the the thing that I'm kind of reflecting there is that and something that I noticed in all of my friends because mo most of my friends do go to uni and everyone studies and then they get out with their qualification and then they struggle to get their foot in the door which is a bad time for everyone but then everyone figures something out whether it was what their initial idea of a career was or they choose another path 
And then everyone started working and then everyone, like so many people I know just got really depressed. And it was like this, uh, I think that time of life where you're at school and then the idea is that when school finishes, then your actual life will begin. Then you, if you go to uni, you kind of reset that. And it's like once uni is over, then your actual life will begin. And then your actual life begins and you're like, oh, is this, is this it? <laughs> um, and so Eva does, she sort of, accidentally becomes pregnant and then does this really radical thing where she's like, I'm, I'm going to do like a hard reset on my life. I'm going to flip it over and quit my job and just like totally do something different um, to, you know, see if that can fulfill her, which is a really like quite a reckless thing to do. But I think the, um, the small joys that the title is referring to, I think is that by the, the way that we all get out of this um, thing is to start finding small joys in our lives and stop always thinking that real life's about to happen and realizing that your life is what you're living and you you need something to get you by day to day that you find joy in and that you know for either it's actually the people around her yeah absolutely it's a really uh it's a really interesting one because of course she's sort of in in terms of the world and how the world looks at things you know this idea of being successful in one's career or on a, a bigger stage Eva already has that. She, you know, acting has come easily to her. She's sort of, um, you know, being potentially nominated for awards or at least getting lauded for the work that she does by getting more work. Uh, But she just doesn't value that in the way that others do. And I guess this is about sort of really uh, at its core questioning what the nature of life is, Uh, which kind of comes back to that kind of original statement that uh, I referenced uh, at the top of the show, talking, uh, you know, the the sort of line that Pat sort of, you know, throws at her, which is something along the lines of why are you waiting for life to happen or don't wait for life to happen, you've got to do what you want to do now or what will make you happy now. And I think that this is one of those particular things that uh, the modern era has evolved into, which is that we could, if you're living in an inner city in a particular cultural milieu, sort of live the same life you have always lived for an extended period of time not changing and it's very easy for you to to sort of put that decision off and put that decision off uh, until you're sort of forced into making those choices. Can, mm. you, can you talk about the decision to sort of make that the, the central theme because I feel like it is it is a really interesting one and it is one that I think plagues a lot of people I know that that sometimes it sort of gets to that point in in their lives where they're like oh actually why you know all of a sudden they realise that they have to make a choice because uh, they, you know, time is more precious than you realise. Yeah, and I I think um, it's interesting with Eva, though, because she's sort of pretending as though she doesn't have a choice. Like, she's sort of like, oh, but this baby, I just got accidentally pregnant, so I guess this is where I'm going now. Like, she sort of throws it up to fate, but really, I mean, she does have a choice because in one of the first scenes of the book, she's going with her friend to get an abortion. So she obviously, like, has access to make a decision. And she is making a decision, but she almost doesn't want to admit that she's making a decision. And there's a huge amount of um, kind of, like, wish fulfilment or, like, reflection of my own life. And that's what you were saying with before really resonated with me. You know, I'm 31 and I've been living in the inner north going, I mean, not until recently, obviously I'm not going out with friends to bars or gigs or music festivals, but I'm still pretty much living the same life that I was when I was in my early 20s. But a difference about it now is that I am in a heterosexual monogamous couple. So there's always this thing where you're like, are we going to stop? Are we like, are we going to do that? 
Um, and I think that I sort of wrote her accidentally getting pregnant because I think sometimes one part of me is like, I wish that that would happen because then I would be forced to do it, <laughs> which completely doesn't make sense because I wouldn't be forced to do it. But there's this like nervousness or you never want to hit the trigger or you want mm-hmm. you want someone else to just do it for you or something. Um, I think there is, I mean, there's something in this that isn't, uh, isn't necessarily um, directly being discussed and that's the idea of, you know, I guess women or people who can get um, pregnant, um, you know, the, the presumption that it is about putting it off in favour of other things rather than understanding that, in fact, um, having a career does make choices difficult, that, that we, you know, society hasn't been set up <laughs> for, um, you know, like a kind of more varied way of looking at the world, like we're expected to make hard choices all the time. And so actually, you know, it is a a more reasonable thing to think that, you know, you want to continue on in the way that you have been because that is what, you know, you're getting success or satisfaction or money or all of the above from. How do you then make, make room for other things that life can hold if, you know, everything's been sort of set up in this particular way that favoured a particularly, um, I guess, you know, it's just evolved from what was once a, a very patriarchal system and continues to be in many ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there is that inherent thing that perhaps life does have to grab us by the throat sometimes in order for us to have to make those tough calls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think I think with this one, I'm sort of interested in what you feel like, I guess particularly when you're reading over um, books that are, you know, covering similar landscapes, similar age ranges or experiences of life, what do you feel like maybe has evolved for your characters that perhaps were, uh, were different for those even in Monkey Grip or similar times? Um, I mean, I guess the huge thing about the, the biggest difference in the millennial novels now compared to ones like Monkey Grip, I think is probably the climate anxiety, which is sort of always simmering behind everything, and especially because this is a book about having a baby, um, that that is there. Um, and then that, I think that also leads, I, from my perception, I think a lot more people of my age are questioning whether or not they're going to have kids and then whether that, what that means that the rest of your life is looking like. Um, yeah, and I didn't write, there's a lot of writers now writing sort of books that are very, very much centred um, around climate change like Bryony Doyle and Kate Mildenhall and Alice Robinson. And um, my, my book is a bit more just like realism, but it's kind of this like back of the thought, like omnipresent kind of thing that's around. Yeah, I think certainly that is one of the triggers as well for this character in terms of uh, keeping the pregnancy is is a discussion again about this idea of not having children isn't necessarily going to change climate change. There's a Mm. lot of these kind of, you know, this detective work that Eva does to sort of make her decision to try to bring along this ghost partner um, to think about or channel what it is or that they would have done that includes these sorts of meditations on the ethics of having having children um, and also her own experiences growing up with uh, a single mother and, you know, how difficult that was. Yeah. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
this book um, has already gained a lot of attention. It was uh, shortlisted for awards prior to its publication, uh, and I believe you did complete some of it uh, at Varuna as part of a fellowship. Uh, so this is something that obviously you've poured a lot of effort into and um, have obviously already established craft. Some of that craft came as you've already mentioned, from short story writing. And I want to talk about this, you know, old chestnut (laughs) that we will sometimes bring up, which is the idea of, um, you know, short stories as maybe a warm-up act for a novel um, or the differences between writing short stories and novel. And I I do want to address that because, you know, regardless of whether or not there's any veracity to this idea of short stories being something to, you do to warm up for a novel, which I would say is highly debatable, it, it, it is a form of fiction that is often the first form that, you know, new fiction writers will set off in. So can we talk a little bit about what short fiction means for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love short stories. Um, I think they're sort of like sprints, so they're... Um, Sorry, I'm getting a little bit of feedback now. Are you... Oh. Yeah, sorry about that. No worries at all. We'll just see if we Um, can fix fix that for you. That's right. I'll keep talking over it, though. Um, Yeah, so short stories, I sort of think of them like sprints where every single sentence has to be doing a lot more work. Within a novel, it's maybe like a a marathon when you set into a pace after a while. I think, though, that short stories are incredibly hard to write. So I think it's actually almost a little bit unfair that they're seen as you know I went through a creative writing degree and it's you know it is seen as the sort of training ground for writing um I won't necessarily say for novel writing because some people go on to just be great story short story writers but it's such a hard form so it's so hard to I think start people out there um I know probably for about two years all the short stories that I wrote were quite but um, what I did do over that time was experiment with different voices and in different tenses and you get to know um, they're sort of the general standard writing cliches but when you everyone has their own cliches and their own words they always go back to or their own phrasing Um, so I got to find out what all those were by working in short stories all the time. Mm. And I think there is a tightness to your writing that is evidence of that kind of craft that, you know, you really do have to demand more from every sentence, from every scene and image that you create when you're in a short story because it really is a tight form and you have not as much uh, space to get a whole world crammed into. Do you feel as though there's any any particular elements of craft that, that you translated across to novel or... or what is it that you had to do to then prepare you for this kind of take you from the sprint to the marathon? I actually, when I first started writing the novel, I I felt like I didn't know what I was doing at all despite all the years I'd done short stories. And I was like, oh, my God, it's a novel. It's going to have to have so much happen in it. It will have to have all these subplots. And I got these absolutely appalling subplots that I started out at the beginning. Um, and when I got finally sort of got through to the end of writing it, I realised that it was actually a lot more similar than I thought. <laughs> um, you kind of just go off go off instinct and then find your way and find your way there. And for me, trying to think of plot and think of subplots and stuff just sent me down a lot of really boring and terrible pathways. Um, 
when I write short stories, so I really like the idea. I like thinking of them like songs where you have the sort of ABC of what happens or maybe ABA, and then songs have a chorus, and that's kind of like the central idea of what a song is about. So whenever I write a short story, I always, like at the top of the word document, I'll think I'll say, like, what is the chorus? And that might change while I'm writing it, but I, and I always keep that in mind, like there's one chorus that should be every single sentence or section should be going back to. Mm. But I guess with a novel, you probably need to journey through, there's probably, you know, maybe it's three choruses or four or two or whatever. I think you probably need to journey through more central reckonings as you're going along. I think I remember Margaret Atwood once describing, uh, you know, trying to find her way into novel as wandering around a darkened room and working out what it looks like by occasionally and painfully banging into things. (laughs) That's beautiful. I like that. Yeah, I think, I feel like, do you do, because this does feel like, you know, again, there is that looseness of life to elements of it in the sense that, you know, there isn't, this is realist fiction, there isn't a clear driving sort of um, plot, I guess. So you are sort of moving in a direction that could end anywhere, you know, end on a jangly note. Um, but there is obviously an arc happening throughout all of this. How does one structure a realist novel? Um, yeah, I mean, as I said before, um, I went back through those other novels and I realised that every sort of scene, there needs to be tension increasing in some way. So it might be tension between Eva and Travis or tension between Eva and Annie or tension just with Eva's thoughts or Eva and Fergus. Like there's all these kind of other other directions you can like twist in it. Like they're all like little screws that you can twist at different points of the structure. Um, and just following that on instinct, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it did take me a lot. I was sort of been going back through a lot of my notes now that it's published and I'm doing these interviews and I, um, so the, the story is set out in months. Um, it goes over about seven or eight months and the, each you know section has a month at the start and there was, it starts in September and I went over my notes the other day and I saw that I had October WTF happens here <laughs> just was like in the beginning was just like oh god what do you do with a person when they're doing nothing like they're just so listless um and obviously working on it in stage four lockdown last year helped me uh, know what you do with a person when they're not working um <laughs> But also it was once you get to the end and you figured out what you, the book that you're writing, you realise like, oh, okay, this is where I've got to lay out these tensions and lay out what the relationship is between these people and you, you figure that stuff out later. Well, let's go back to talk about that structure because obviously there was a natural organising mechanism there because of the pregnancy. So having mm-hmm. around the period of a pregnancy makes a lot of sense because that's the period um, you're observing a real-life change about to happen um, and I don't think it will be giving too much away to say that you're sort of ending before the next stage of what happens after you have a pregnancy um, yeah. that goes to term. So it's really you've got that natural sort of um, time frame set out, which I think is, is obviously going to give you something to work with there. Can you talk about how you've structured the novel around that? Because it's primarily from the first person. Uh, it's written uh, from... Eva's perspective and you are really using um, you know that kind of first person reporting style that that gives you some some really great um, energy but also when uh, there's sections when Eva is 
reflecting on uh, thoughts that she's having about Pat and it slips into the second person. Can you talk about the decisions to sort of structure things in that way and how you, you set out to do so? Or did you just play around and land on that? I just started writing in Eva's voice um, and that was so that was in first person. The first words I ever wrote were this kind of monologue that appears early-ish in the book when she's at a house party in Coburg and she talks about how much she hates acting. Those are the, that was the first thing I ever got. And then I set out in this first person and I saw the last scene very early in the process and I had that in my head and how I got there changed many times but I always had the final words of the book or they changed a little bit but I had that final scene and that there so I always kind of knew where I was beginning and where I was ending and for a long time I found it very difficult to her longing after Pat and sort of grieving this person that she didn't know it was really hard to write that in any way that wasn't overly sentimental and gushy, like her looking out a window or seeing someone in the street that looked like him. And I was really struggling to show this preoccupation with this deceased character. And then um, sort of luckily a friend gave me a book called The Friend by Sigrid Nunes, who at the time I hadn't heard of and has since become one of my favourite writers. And that book is written in second person addressed to someone who's recently committed suicide. And I was reading this second-person book and then I just started writing in second person, either addressing Pat, and then it just all started, like, gushing out of me. I wrote the section that you read at the start of today, the opening of the book, I wrote that. And I wrote the next few sort of letters, as I call them, to him. And then I had this crisis where I thought I was going to scrap everything and go in the second person. And I was like, oh, no, I can't. I've written too much. Um, and then I realised that I could, the letters were the perfect way for me to kind of show this preoccupation and obsession with him and not have to try and shoehorn it into her sort of being like, oh, I was on the tram today and then I started thinking about Pat, da 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 I could actually just put them in there in between the chapters as their own thing. And there's immediate stylistic change so people know what's coming um, and are moving into that mode. I think it's really beautifully done. And it sort of, it doesn't have that, I think that there's some techniques that really take you out of the narrative and make you feel like you're entering another one, whereas this really does feel like you're, you know, entering a different level of her interiority um, by just shifting the, the use of the pronoun in that way. So it's quite Yeah, and I really thought about it a lot while I was working on the book because you do, everyone, you know, you're going about your life, you get up, you eat your breakfast, you go to work, you're like, what time's the train? What am I going to have for dinner tonight? Do I have that in the fridge? So you're just going about the function of your life. But then we, you do think about things and you do grieve and you think about disappointments. But I was like, when does that happen? It's really hard to say at what point in your day are you thinking about that thing because... I can't, it sort of feels like I'm never thinking about those things, but it's obviously happening at some point. So it's like, yeah. It's a really interesting, yeah, it's a, it's, um, it is an interesting sort of insight into, because when you're using that first person, you are playing with how people are thinking as well. So, um, you know, you want to, you want to be able to channel that at the same time as using it as a, as a kind of narration voice and also doing these other, other things with it. I want to I want to uh, talk about the you know the character that's not there as you've just touched on. So the central character to all this, and that is my 
phone going off right in the middle of that. Um, the central character to all this is, of course, uh, you know, Pat, who has, you know, very much only been uh, reported to us um, through these these little glimpses at the start and and slowly as we sort of, you know, step into um, these these memories or these obsessions of, of Eva where she's trying to, you know, piece together who this person was by looking at his best friend's Facebook account or, you know, like, re, you know, rehashing memories to, to kind of really try to dig under the surface of them to get to the core of the person who isn't there. And this is something that it is obviously um, grief and uh, loss and the idea of how do we keep a person alive who isn't. Um, but also it's something that I think we all do. It's this idea of who are the people around us when a good chunk of them are projection. And you sort of see this played out a little bit in her relationship with her friends as well because we have this idea of who people are that are very much based on our perceptions of them rather than the complexity of who they are. And you definitely see that in the relationship between Eva and Sarah um, and, and Eva and Annie. Uh, but, yeah, this particular idea of, you know, that people can be our creation uh, and we need to sort of consider what that role is for us. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting sort of perspective to write grief from because she's grieving someone that she didn't know. And um, I think that it's, you know, the image that you, someone sort of said to me the other day, oh, Pat's like the only man in the book that actually comes off well. Yes. <laughs> um, but that's because it is this, you know, you don't actually really do get an actual sense of what he was like because Eva doesn't really know that much of what he was like, except on like a passing kind of level. Um, and she's kind of lusting uh, after this idea and reading so much into photographs that are old photographs on Facebook that are really just someone in their 20s taking a photo of them having beers in the park. It's quite a meaningless thing, but then someone will try and try to colour in under that. Um, yeah, and I suppose that it took me a long time to realise the central tension of the book would be with her and Travis, who's Pat's friend, and that's her in to actually get a more real picture of this person. So she's got to, like, gear herself up to finding, connecting with the real. Mm, absolutely. There is a real richness in the, in the book around relationships as they change over time between friends and, you know, again as I've just referenced, how how we kind of expect a friend to act and then, you know, um, reinforce that behaviour to a certain extent by our expectations. I think that you're sort of seeing that. And again, coming back to the coming-of-age theme, you know, it very much is played out in terms of how um, Eva's renegotiating her relationships with her friends, uh, the way she kind of treats other people beyond that. And you get a real glimpse after a particular encounter she has with her sort of... Um, I guess, you know, just casual lover, Fergus, um, that suddenly gives you, a, a, you know, that sort of faulty narrator moment where you see Eva through someone else's eyes. Can you talk about that uh, just a little bit about how you've sort of created this, this idea of, uh, you know, of these other supplementary characters, giving them that richness and, and connection in order to sort of give Eva a little bit more, um, you know, of a context? Yeah, um, I guess it's so much of the novel is about her kind of, un she doesn't really unfairly judge her friends and then she's sort of hyper aware that they might be unfairly judging her. 
But then I think they all do that from a place of their own securities and loving each other. Um, and one thing I did sort of... I mean, Eva is not a very likeable character. She's quite prickly. And that was... Um, she was actually toned down a lot when she used to be, like, really worse. She was really obnoxious. Um, there's a lot of meek, self-effacing young women in literature, I think, because most writers are that. So I, I was like, I'm going to go on and write, like, a Holden Caulfield. I want to write something that was awful. And then the publisher was like, you need to make her, like, she can be a bit arrogant and prickly, but people need to like her. So I had to soften her a little bit. Um, but I really liked playing with, you know, she, she does do really questionable behaviour. She doesn't treat everyone very well. She's a bit selfish. But also she's going through this really hard time, so that's understandable. I kind of liked playing with the dynamic with her and Fergus, though, which is her sort of on-again, off-again casual sexual partner. Um, she treats him very badly, and, but, and then she sort of describes him as quite an arrogant and unlikable person, but then the reader doesn't really know what he's like because that is via her kind of unfair narration. Mm. Um, and that was something I kind of wanted to leave in there. Was It was quite difficult to maybe see what his true character was like because the reader's only finding it out there either. Yeah, but you do leave enough clues and I think this is what, you know, again, it's one of those really difficult things to do when you're writing from a first-person character but that you've managed to achieve with this character. There is that complexity there, you know, both of her being misunderstood and also of her misunderstanding others. You're getting a fuller version of who she is and also this, you know, sense of growth that happens somewhat by the end without feeling twee or (laughs) overly shoehorned in. I think it's really well uh well done um but Ali I feel as though we well I would love to keep talking to you about so much more to do with this book and and your writing life thank you so much though we've reached the end of the show um thank you for joining me today uh thank you so much thank you so much for having me um and yeah I hope one last thing I'll just say is last year during stage four lockdown I was working on the edits of a book with my publisher and it I actually found it quite cathartic to feel as though I was living in a Melbourne that is no longer here. So maybe at the moment, if people are missing the Melbourne of pre-COVID, maybe my novel can give you a little bit of vicarious joy. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that, but that is Melbourne is a massive character in this novel and I was absolutely delighted to read through all the cafes that you listed them going to and the bars and, um, you know, the kind of, uh, like, pools or huge description of suburbs I yeah it did make me feel pretty um, emotional I have to say so it is a a lovely vicarious way to live in a Melbourne that used to be so thank you Ali for your book today that was Ali Richards uh, author of Small Joys of Real Life her debut novel which is out now through Hachette independently yours triple R 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.